Chapter Thirteen, Part Three of the Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One. By Frederick Wimper. Chapter Thirteen, Part Three, The Service, Officer's Life on Board. One more possibility in the officer's existence, although now nearly obsolete, the ceremonies formerly attendant on crossing the line, i.e., passing over the equator, so often described, have of late years been more honored in the breach than in the observance. On merchant vessels they had become a nuisance, as the sailors often made them an opportunity for levying blackmail on timid and nervous passengers. In the Royal Navy they afforded the one chance for getting even with unpopular officers, and very roughly was it sometimes accomplished. They are for this reason introduced in this chapter, as the officers had a direct interest in them. With trifling exceptions, the program was as follows. The men, stripped to the waist, wearing only duck unmentionables, prepared, immediately after breakfast, for the Saturnalia of the day, a day when the ship was en carnival, and discipline relaxed. Early in the day, a man at the masthead, peering through a telescope, would announce a boat on the weather bow and soon after a voice from the jibboom was heard hailing the ship, announcing that Neptune wished to come on board. The ship was accordingly hove to when a sailor in fashionable coat, knee-breeches, and powdered hair came aft, and announced to the commander that he was gentleman's gentleman to the god of the sea, who desired an interview. This accorded, the procession of Neptune from the forecastle at once commenced. The triumphal car was a gun carriage, drawn by half a dozen half-naked and grotesquely painted sailors, their heads covered by wigs of seaweed. Neptune was always masked, as were many of his satellites, in order that the officers should not know who enacted the leading roles. The god wore a crown, and held out a trident, on which a dolphin, supposed to have been impaled that morning, was stuck. He had a flowing wig and beard of oakum, and was, in all points, made up for Neptune himself. His suite included a secretary of state, his head stuck all over with long quills, a surgeon with lancet, pill-box, and medicines, his barber with a razor cut from an iron hoop, and with an assistant, who carried a tub for a shaving-box. Mrs. Neptune was represented by the ugliest man on board, who, with seaweed hair and a huge nightcap, carried a baby, one of the boys of the ship, in long clothes. The latter played with a marlin spike, given it to assist in cutting its teeth. The nurse followed with a bucketful of burgoo, thick oatmeal porridge or pudding and fed the baby incessantly with the cook's iron ladle. Sea nymphs, selected from the clumsiest and fattest of the crew, helped to swell the retinue. 
as soon as the procession halted before the captain behind whom the steward waited carrying a tray with a bottle of wine and glasses neptune and amphitrite paid submission to the former as representative of great britain and the god presented him the dolphin after the interview in which neptune not unfrequently poked fun and thrust home truths at the officers the captain offered the god and goddess a bumper of wine and then the rougher part of the ceremony commenced neptune would address his court somewhat as follows hark ye my tritons you're here to shave and duck and bleed all as needs it but you've got to be gentle or we'll get no more fees the first of ease disobeys me i'll tie to a ten-ton gun and sink him ten thousand fathoms below where he shall drink nothing but salt water and feed on seaweed for the next hundred years the cow-pen was usually employed for the ducking bath it was lined with double canvas and boarded up so as to hold several butts of water marriott in the first naval novel he wrote says many of the officers purchased exemption from shaving and physic by a bottle of rum but none could escape the sprinkling of salt water which fell about in great profusion even the captain received his share it was easy to perceive on this occasion who were favorites with the ship's company by the degree of severity with which they were treated the tyro was seated on the side of the cowpen he was asked the place of his nativity and the moment he opened his mouth the shaving brush of the barber which was a very large paint-brush was crammed in with all the filthy lather with which they covered his face and chin this was roughly scraped off with the great razor the doctor felt his pulse and prescribed a pill which was forced into his cheek and the smelling bottle the cork of which was armed with sharp points of pins was so forcibly applied to his nose as to bring blood after this he was thrown backward into the bath and allowed to scramble out the best way he could the first lieutenant the reader may remember dodged out of the way for some time but at last was surrounded and plied so effectually with buckets of salt water that he fled down a hatchway the buckets were pitched after him and he fell like the roman virgin covered with the shields of the soldiers very unpopular men or officers were made to swallow half a pint of salt water those good old times pleasant is it to read of life on board a modern first-class man-o'-war where there are perhaps thirty officers in the wardroom it would be hard indeed if one cannot find a kindred spirit while on such a vessel the band will discourse sweet music while you dine and soothe you over the walnuts and wine after the toils of the day with selections from the best operas waltzes and quadrilles then comes the coffee and the postprandial cigar in the smoking-room at sea luncheon is dispensed with and the regular hour is half-past two but in port both lunch and dinner are provided and the officers on leave ashore can return to either say that you have extended your ramble in the country you will have established an appetite by half-past five the hour when the officer's boat puts off from shore wharf or pier perhaps the most pleasant evening is the guest's night one of which is arranged for every week
when the officer can, by notifying the mess-caterer, invite a friend or two. The mess-caterer is the officer selected to superintend the victualling department, as the wine-caterer does the liquid refreshments. It is by no means an enviable position, for it is the Englishman's conceded right to growl, and sailors are equal to the occasion. Dr. Stables remarks on the unfairness of this under-the-table stabbing, when most probably the caterer is doing his best to please. But on a well-regulated ship, where the officers are harmonious, and either not extravagant or with private means, the dinner hour is the most agreeable time in the day. After the cloth has been removed, and the president, with a due preliminary tap on the table to attract attention, has given the only toast of the evening, the queen. The bandmaster, who has been peering in at the door for some minutes, starts the national anthem at the right time, and the rest of the evening is devoted to pleasant intercourse, or visits ashore to the places of amusement, or houses of hospitable residence. Before leaving for the nonce, the Royal Navy, its officers and men, a few facts may be permitted, particularly interesting at the present time. The Navy, as now constituted, has for its main backbone fifty-four ironclads. There are of all classes of vessels no less than four hundred and sixty-two, but more than a fourth of these are merely hulks doing harbour service, etc., while quite a proportion of the remainder, varying according to the exigencies of the times, are out of commission. There are seventy-eight steam gunboats, and five fine Indian troop ships. These numbers are drawn from the official navy list of latest date. It is said that since the ironclad movement commenced, not less than three hundred million pounds has been dispersed in about twenty years by the different countries of the world. Even Japan, Peru, Venezuela, Chile, the Argentine Confederation, possess many of this class of vessel of more or less power. The British fleet, under the command of Vice Admiral Hornby, in the Mediterranean, etc., though numerically not counting twenty per cent of the fleets in the days of Nelson and Collingwood, when a hundred sail of the line frequently assembled has cost infinitely more. A cool half million is not an exceptional cost for an ironclad, while one of the latest of our turret ships, the Inflexible, has cost the nation three-quarters of a million sterling at the least. She is to carry four eighty-ton guns. A recent correspondent of a daily journal states that next to Great Britain the ironclad fleet of the Sultan ranks foremost among the navies of the world. Be that as it may, there can be little doubt that if Russia had succeeded in acquiring it, it would, with her own fleet, have constituted a very powerful rival. The progressive augmentation in the size of naval vessels has been rapid in Great Britain. When Henry VIII constructed his Henry Grasse de Dieu of one thousand tons, it was indeed a great giant among pygmies, for a vessel of two or three hundred tons was then considered large. At the death of Elizabeth she left forty-two ships of seventeen hundred tons in all, and eight thousand three hundred and forty-six men, 
fifteen of her vessels being six hundred tons and upwards from this period the tonnages of the navy steadily increased the first really scientific architect mr phineas pett remodelled the navy to good purpose in the reigns of james i and charles i previous to this time the vessels with their lofty poops and forecastles had greatly resembled chinese junks he launched the sovereign of the seas a vessel two hundred and thirty two feet in length and of a number of tons exactly corresponding to the date sixteen thirty seven when she left the slips cromwell found a navy of fourteen two-deckers and left one of a hundred and fifty vessels of which one-third were line-of-battle ships he was the first to lay naval estimates before parliament and obtained four hundred thousand pounds per annum for the service james the second left a hundred and eight ships of the line and sixty-five other vessels of a hundred and two thousand tons with forty-two thousand men william the third brought it to two hundred and seventy-two ships of a hundred and fifty-nine thousand and twenty tons george the second left in seventeen sixty four hundred and twelve ships of three hundred and twenty one thousand one hundred and four tons twenty-two years later the navy had reached six hundred and seventeen vessels and in eighteen thirteen we had the enormous number of one thousand vessels of which two hundred and fifty-six were of the line measuring nine hundred thousand tons carrying a hundred and forty-six thousand seamen and marines and costing eighteen million pounds per annum to maintain but since the peace of eighteen fifteen the number of vessels has greatly diminished while an entirely new era of naval construction has been inaugurated in the seventeenth century a vessel of fifteen hundred tons was considered of enormous size at the end of the eighteenth twenty five hundred was the outside limit whilst there are now many vessels of four thousand tons and the navy possesses frigates of six thousand and upwards several of our enormous ironclads have a tonnage of over eleven thousand tons while the great eastern of course a very exceptional case has a tonnage of twenty two thousand five hundred whilst we have efficient military volunteers enough to form a grand army our naval volunteers do not number more than the contingents for a couple of large vessels there are scarcely more than a thousand of the latter and only three stations london liverpool and brighton divide the honour between them of possessing corps the writer believes that he will be doing a service to many young men who in their turn may do good service for their country in briefly detailing the conditions and expenses of joining in a very short period of time the members have become wonderfully efficient and the sailor-like appearance of the men is well illustrated by the fact that at a recent reception at the mansion house a number of them were taken for men-of-war's men and so described in several daily journals 
their prowess is illustrated by the prizes distributed by lady ashley at the inspection of the first london corps in the west india docks on february ninth last badges were won by the gunner making the best practice with the heavy gun at sea and by the marksman making the greatest number of points with the rifle the lord ashley challenge prize for the best guns crew at sea was won by fourteen men of number two battery who fired forty-two rounds at thirteen hundred yards in thirty-seven minutes scoring four hundred and eleven points out of a possible five hundred and four points the official report says that further comment on the men or their instructor is superfluous the list included rifle battery and boating prizes the royal navy artillery volunteers are raised under an act passed in eighteen seventy three and are directly subject to the authority of the admiralty they may be assembled for actual employment their duties then consisting of coast or harbor service they are not required to go aloft or to attend to the engine fires, but in regard to berthing and messing must conform to the arrangements usual with seamen. The forces formed into brigades, each brigade consisting of four or more batteries of from sixty to eighty men. Each brigade has a lieutenant commander, and each battery a sub-lieutenant, chief petty officer, first and second class petty officers, buglers, etc., while the staff includes a lieutenant instructor, first-class petty officer instructor, surgeon, bugle major, and armorer. Those desiring to join a corps should communicate with the Secretary of the Admiralty. The annual subscription to the first London Corps is one guinea, while each member has to provide himself with two white frocks, one blue serge frock, one pair of blue trousers, one blue cloth cap, etc., black handkerchief, flannel, knife, lanyard, and monkey jacket, costing in the neighborhood of six pounds. When on a cruise, in gunboat, the volunteer requires, in addition, serge trousers and jumpers, flannel shirt, towels, and brush and comb, canvas bags, etc., the officers' uniforms are the same as those of the Royal Navy, with the exception of silver, for the most part, taking the place of gold. It is more expensive to join the naval than the military volunteers, and the class composing the corps are generally well-to-do young men, a large number of them employed in shipping offices and mercantile pursuits connected with the sea. The drills consist of practice with great guns, rifle, pistol, and cutlass exercises. Efficient volunteers are entitled to a badge, while men returned five times as efficient may wear one star, and those returned ten times two stars, above said badge. Every volunteer must attend at least two drills a month until he has obtained the standard of an efficient when on actual service the royal naval artillery volunteers will receive the same pay allowances and victuals as those of relative rank in the navy 
and when embarked on any of her majesty's ships for more than forty-eight hours in practice will either be victualled or receive a money compensation the cruises in gunboats etc usually last ten days and the vessel visits many of the channel ports etc more especially off points where gun practice is practicable a volunteer wounded either on drill or in actual service is entitled to the same compensation as any seaman in the navy would be under similar circumstances and if killed his widow if any to the same gratuities out of the greenwich hospital funds as would a royal navy seaman's widow members who are able to take advantage of the crews in gunboats must have attended drill regularly for three months previously it must be remembered that each man costs the government from eight to ten pounds for the first year in the expenses incurred in great gun and other practice and it is therefore made a point of honor to those joining that they will devote sufficient time to their drills to make themselves thoroughly efficient the london naval artillery volunteers have a fine vessel the president now in the west india docks on which to exercise while to accustom them to living on board ship the old rainbow off temple pier is open to them under certain conditions as a place of residence a number avail themselves of this sleep on board in hammocks and contribute their quota of the mess expenses the writer is the last to decry other manly exercises such as cricket football racing or pedestrianism but naval volunteering has the advantage of not merely comprising a series of manly exercises but in being directly practical and specially health-giving and to prevent the need of impressment the government did well in establishing the royal navy reserve the latest estimates provided a hundred and forty thousand pounds for the year the number which at present is about twenty thousand men is not to exceed thirty thousand the service is divided into two classes the first class consisting of seamen of the merchant service and the second fishermen on the coasts of great britain and ireland both divisions are practical sailors and the value of their services in a time of war would be inestimable they are required to drill twenty-eight days in each year for which they receive about six pounds per annum and sundry allowances for travelling etc the former class can be drilled at our stations abroad so that a merchant seaman is not necessarily tied to england or to mere coasting trade End of chapter thirteen part three